بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Okay, so last thing I want to do uh, would be two simple run-throughs of all the ayats that we looked at uh, from uh, of, of this particular session to get some sense of, of how dynamics uh, uh, what are community dynamics and the key points we've already discussed and that is you know what is the condition of, of your scholars and leaders but uh, let's uh, jump right into this share screen so hopefully you all can see this and and so I have 40 Remember, this is all being addressed to the children of Israel. And what else do we say? That you are part of, you are being addressed if you believe you are being addressed. You are part of it, you are being addressed if you regard yourself as being part of the children of Israel. And so one aspect of, of the dynamics of this, of, of a group is in terms of identification and legacy or identification and history. So nearly 100% of my waking hours have taken place in the Chicagoland area. But for example, being part of being of Pakistani birth, South Asian descent, that's going to be part of my, my psychology, my consciousness, my default. And so there's more. We're just going to be touching on, on some things here. Let's see. Uh, What's an easy way to do this rather than go back and forth? Uh, I think we might not have any option. We have to, um, well, <clears throat> okay. Okay, so, in fact, so, so Yabani Israel, and then what else do we have in terms of their dynamics? We said that in this first part, they're being told to fulfill their religion, right? Fulfill your pact with me. Remember the favors I made. Fulfill your pact with me. I will fulfill my pact with you. And be terrified uh, by me. Hold me in fear. Believe what I've sent down, confirming that which is already with you. <clears throat> and, and so another issue of community dynamics is determining who is in, who is out, who do we have a natural bond with? Who do we have natural alliances with? This gets especially into the issue of, of sectarianism. But so, for example, over the past 15 years or so, 20 years, in our society, we've been using the term uh, Abrahamic religions uh, as a way to speak of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and, and, uh, and Islam. Uh, we still, in our society, use the term Judeo-Christian values which is kind of uh, also itself a political statement uh, because uh, as we know for most of the history of Christianity, Jews were looked at as not just the enemy, they were looked at as Christ killers, the killers of God committing deicide. But there is a politics there that is also part of the process of determining who is in, who is out. Here, they're being told that, all right, this book, the Quran, confirms what you have. Meaning, confirms what you have is true, and then flip it over, your book is confirming this to be, to be true. 
Shakespeare. And then this, this, the rest of this first section, I have 40 to 46, we said who's being addressed here primarily are the influencers in our contemporary language and which influencers primarily, it would be the scholars. Meaning the scholars should be the first people to be recognizing the prophet, peace be upon him. They should not be the first to reject him. And nor should they be mixing truth with falsehood. And so, so what else we have here is the sheer influence of scholars potentially in either leading their people to write or leading them astray. And scholars, for our purposes right now, I'm speaking of experts of any category, especially in the matter of Dean, but with this pandemic, that's been one of the big issues, right? First, okay, do you believe what a scientist is saying or do you believe what a YouTube star is saying? You know, or do you believe what, what you know, a reality TV star is saying? And then from there, so the second round, the current round of conspiracy theory videos is coming from people that are purported to be physicians. And so, so expertise is such an important part of the community. And either community members will turn to experts for their answers, or they're gonna specifically reject experts saying, you know, I know better. Yeah. I mean, that is part of the Salafi movement, right? The Salafi movement is I have the intellect to study the text on my own. And scholars are, are humans that are prone to make mistakes and are, are promoting division and such. And then by extension, who do we join? Establish the salah, give the zakah, and and do ruku with those people who do ruku. And so, so on the one hand, part of it is who are we excluding, but who are we also joining? Here, the children of Israel are being told to join the ummah. And that's been a, <clears throat> that's been a recurring theme through both course one and, and uh, uh, course two as well. And then we have the issue of what is being preached and what is being practiced. And central to a community is upright conduct. If that is not only the default in the community, I mean, that needs to be the default of a community as well as the widespread practice virtue. Birr must be the default. If it is not, Corruption is one of those things that also feeds upon itself and spreads like mold. And I think we made a point here about like the, in terms of philosophies of history, all the generations of prophets, peace be upon them, until and including Musa alayhi salam, the formula was the same. A prophet is appointed among the people. The people reject, turn to someone else, and then behave corruptly, and then they get destroyed. And then we said in terms of latter, modern philosophies of history, the idea is that if you're on top, you'll remain on top, but the more corrupt you are, the more easy you're going to be to be overtaken by another nation. And so upright conduct is very, very central to, to um, a, a community's health. Uh, what do you think? Uh, in terms of, from a worldly perspective, which is more important, iman of a community or upright conduct? What do y'all think? And there's no right or wrong answer. So Iqbal is saying upright conduct. 
and Saudi upright conduct, upright conduct. That's where I would lean as well. And of course, if we can make the argument that Iman should lead to upright conduct, then it would be Iman, of course. And you know, they do go hand in hand. But I'm saying if in some hypothetical case you had to pick one, uh, would you pick people who, let's change it, would you pick people who make all their prayers or would you pick people who are thoroughly honest? So if I made that the framing, which would you pick? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's essentially the, the the point that's being made here. I mean, of course, it's um, it's your that's not a real world scenario picking one or the other, but that's to make a point. <clears throat> Wouldn't honest people make their prayers? Inshallah, but don't dishonest people also make their prayers? And so, so then are you calling people to bid while you yourself are forgetting yourselves? And then this is a point that we made, afala ta'qilun, or no, I'm sorry, al-kitab, that one of the issues of the children of Israel is that they are reciting the kitab. It does not look like they are taqra'una of the kitab. They're not doing the, rest, the reading of, of, the, of the book. I mean, that's something we can uh, pair with our condition today. Learning how to recite the book is very, very important. Uh, but if you are not learning what the book is telling you, the content, then, then one of the first things to go is going to be community justice and then from their character. Okay. And then what also becomes a question, what become the foundations for strength of a community? So with the Sahaba, when they were in Mecca, the instruction was what? Keep your hands tied. No matter what the Quraysh says or does, do not respond. And a consequence of that was that as a collective body, they're all experiencing this persecution. And then as a consequence of that, they are getting stronger. They're getting more solidarity with each other. In fact, a rabbi was, was, I was, I was with a rabbi and he was saying this semi-jokingly, that he was saying every community, every minority community needs a little bit of persecution to keep everyone focused and straight and upright and such, to keep, their, to keep themselves strong. You know, that often we will work according to how strong the persecution is against us. And so here, what are they being told? Seek help in sabr and salah. And of course, it is hard unless you have khushu'ah. We've spoke about all of that. And then from a, from a, a whole larger perspective, Understand that when we're saying you're going to return to Allah, everything you're doing in this dunya is temporary. What is not temporary would be your actions. What you acquire in this world is temporary. And so even think about any type of nationalism in history, whether we're talking about American nationalism, whether we're talking about Zionism, what have you, how long is that stuff going to last? I mean, is the state of Israel going to be here 200 years from now? Probably not, you know. Is it going to be here 100 years from now? Probably not. And and so so you got to wonder what you're what you're focusing your nationalism on, you know, especially if it necessitates the destruction of of another population of people. <clears throat> and then of course you're going to be facing him. And so at the very least that should be a sense of duty, and better that a sense of hope. In the sense that you cannot escape the justice of Allah. So those are some points to think about from the first uh, section. And then this next subsection, 
going all the way, give or take, to about I-59. Then we have the history of a community. And there we had extensive discussion about narratives. And so one of your optional assignments, and some of you are still, I know I still have to get back to you, is to, is to map out what is your own narrative. We also looked at, at, at the narratives of the Muslim community. And often in your narrative, there's going to be a consistent theme. So the theme that is here is that Allah kept giving them favors, but they did not respond with gratitude. He took them out of slavery, favor. He destroyed their oppressors, favor. He gave them, he gave them the lead of Musa, salam. He gave them guidance. He forgave them when they turned to the calf. Favor upon favor upon favor, but they did not respond with gratitude. And so American Christianity will have some dominant narratives. American Judaism, American Islam will have some dominant narratives. In terms of the common narrative of American Islam, when does Islam begin in America? The common narrative, as opposed to historically, when does Islam begin in America? What do y'all think? Yeah, I think for most people, it actually begins in the 60s or 70s. Even though we have Alexander Russell Webb, <clears throat> who's here in 1893. Before that, we have, you know, the, the uh, arrival of the enslaved in the transatlantic trans slavery uh, uh, trade, slave trade. And then before that, we have the arrival of these Chinese explorers going all the way back to the 1400s. And so part of why we would say the 60s or 70s, and maybe a little bit earlier, would be the establishment of a continuous settlement. Well, just a factoid, the oldest extant map of North America is in Arabic, dating to 8th century. Oh, 8th century. Well, subhanAllah. If you can find it online, yep. please please send it. That would be really, really... Oh, no. There's a, uh, there's a book. It's called uh, America BC, before Columbus, written oh, by Barry Fell, who was a professor emeritus at Harvard. At Harvard. Hmm. So... Uh, it's very fascinating. It's both uh, uh, Saga America and uh, America BC. So See, the, it's, it's there, well, well documented. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, also in Nevada, on the border of Nevada and uh, California are mountains uh, called uh, White Mountains. There, they have actually Arabic uh, Kufi scripts dating back, dating to that era. Well, have you seen that with your own eyes? You know, I'm a couch potato, but I have the photographs. Okay. No, I mean, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not denying you. I was just be curious if you saw it with your, I'm not doubting you. Uh, I'm saying that would be cool to, to actually it's, see. It's pretty rural. You, you know, it's, it's off the beaten track. You have to be kind of like a, a four-wheeler and dirt bike enthusiast to get up there. Okay, so then, you know, without getting too far off topic. So do you believe the thing about Huna Lulu? That... Actually, uh, uh, Leo Wiener is pretty big on this, and he's coming back into Vogue. So, okay, uh, yeah. So, so short uh, answer is yes. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I got nothing. So, so Hana, we're just saying basically, Honolulu. Uh, the name is, is the theory is that is Honolulu. Anyone want to translate what is Honolulu? Leith, you want to be our official Arab today? Isn't it like here's the pearl? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then Hawaii, it's like the place of Hawaii. Anyway, so 
So, uh, but the point we're making here is that part, a big part of a community, especially in creating its sense of solidarity is what is its narrative? And what are some of the core elements of its narrative? And sometimes that is both the strongest element of a community as well as its most destructive element of, of, of the community. Siberia, we need summer. <laughs> so, so that is, is also often constructed. And we're contrasting narrative from history. History is this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. Whereas narrative is, you know, here's our story. Okay. <clears throat> and so, so then uh, we have uh, the fact that Allah Ta'ala is saving them. We also have within the narrative, we have who are your persecutors. So we have those guys that, that have been arrested for killing that, that jogger, that African-American jogger in Georgia. And I am 100% sure that, I mean, whether or not those are the killers, but in, um, that in the mindset of the killers, there's also the sentiment that the federal government is our enemy. That the federal government uh, is, is a place of exploitation, especially when it's a democratic government. And, and so uh, one thing to think about in terms of the Muslim American narrative, it is, uh, the question is, uh, who do we consider as the enemies? How would you answer that question? I think right now we definitely say Trump. I definitely say uh, the right-wing evangelicals. Uh, if we had this conversation up to 20 years ago, we probably would have said Jews, right? Made Jews synonymous with Zionists, synonymous with Israelis and such. So. And, and so who should be the enemy is of course, Shaitan. And, and so, so the point is that this also gets constructed, which could mean that a community has a narrative that is actually wrong. So part of it is how much of it is authentic, how much of it is made up. It's like, you know, when you're a kid, you're taught, George Washington says, I cannot tell a lie, chop the cherry tree and all that. <clears throat> but uh, this uh, becomes important uh, to determine not just a narrative with the goal of what type of energy do you want to give the community, but to whom do they regard as the oppressors or to whom do they direct their attention as the oppressors or as the, as the enemy? And, can, and right now, I'm saying in these particular years, the dominant sentiment among, among the Muslim community is this social justice sentiment. So like these points of the oppressors, the, the top 1%. And, and, and to make that point further, I don't remember if we discussed it in this class, if I were to ask you, who are the most followed contemporary Muslim Americans, who would the answer be? What do you all think? Uh, I think at the top of the list is Ilhan Omar. I think she's literally number one. Not too far behind her is Rashida Tlaib. Yeah. If we had this conversation 20 years ago, might have been Hamza Yusuf. You know. Uh, and, and so notice when we think of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, 
we see them as politicians, but we also uh, we frame them um, as people who are part of social who are part of the social justice movement. As far as I'm concerned, they're politicians, right? They're part of the establishment, but their framing in our community is that they're leading the way against oppression. And so, so again, that's part of the contemporary con community narrative. In about five years, it's probably going to change again. But there, we're going to reach a point where it's going to start stabilizing, or it's going to start ossifying and getting hardened. Okay. <clears throat> and then also in a community's narrative, what is thing? What are some things that are miraculous? Five years, Muzaffar. Uh, probably not Omar Muzaffar, but uh, uh, I mean, I think I'm closer to being regarded as the Antichrist. Anyway, so so what are some miraculous things, for example, like uh, what is part of the narrative of the establishment of Pakistan? What is the date of the establishment of Pakistan? Pakistanis? Uh, that's the, the date of independence. The 27th of Ramadan is looked at as the date of the establishment of Pakistan. It, now, that's more than just coincidence, right? It's making Pakistan divinely ordained by making it happen on Laylatul Qadr. Cool. And so, so this is also part of the, the matter of community narratives. And then in your narrative, do you also have times where you went off base and then you straighten yourself out? So, so Musa is away, peace be upon him, and then the people turn to the calf and then he gives them a way to straighten themselves out. One thing that is often disturbing for Muslims, uh, like the people of Eunice or Eunice in particular, would be good. But one thing that's often usually the Khalifas, and we don't realize that okay, there's a civil war under under uh, Abu Bakr, and then you all see me. Am I? Can you see me now? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. So, so one point I was making is that when we, uh, because of, because our narrative of the history of Islam is basically the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, a little bit of a mention of the four Khalifas and a few a few bullet points for the next 1300 years, uh, then the common Muslim gets shocked when we have two civil wars in the first 30 years after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him. And then it looks like this is horrible. And then if you point out the fact that three of the four Khalifas were murdered, then that seems even worse. And then from a secular perspective, that seems really bad, but from a secular perspective, what's often ignored is, okay, each civil war was followed up with a piece of, with the period of unity. And I think that is actually rather, rather shocking from just a purely secular perspective. One of the big questions from a, the historical study of Islam is why did it grow so fast? Why did the Muslim community grow so fast? Within the deen, we'd say, because they are doing the service of Allah Ta'ala, therefore they grew so fast. And some of the secular explanations include the fact that uh, in the first century, at the very least, if not beyond that, there was little focus, there was almost no focus on changing the lives of the people. The focus was on getting rid of the oppressors. For, so for the layperson, 
their day-to-day -day life was more or less the same. Whereas for the oppressors, they're being removed. And so not only were their day-to-day -day, day -day lives kept the same, even the Muslim fighters, the invaders, were not even allowed to live there. They had to set up these garrison towns, these amsar, uh, separate from, from the people. Eventually, those amsars grew and overtook the local towns. So I gave the example that Cairo um, was, was a garrison town. Fustat was the actual town there. And then as Al-Qahira grew and grew and grew, it overtook Fustat. Many of the, 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 the big cities of Iraq that we're familiar with were garrison towns. Okay, and then what else do we have, of course, is what is their source of law? Is it in the modern era? Is it a constitution? Is it a scripture? And then by extension, what is their source of ethics? What is it that they rely upon for upright conduct? So what would you say are the primary sources for American law and ethics? Obviously the constitution's there and obviously the Bible would be there somewhere. What else would be there? So I'd say related to the constitution, we'd have the Federalist Papers. I think the Declaration of Independence in terms of the spirit of the declaration, definitely. I think most people can't don't know anything about what's in the Declaration of Independence beyond the first couple of paragraphs. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, so forth and so on. And I think English common law and then its implementation through the Supreme Court, I think that's absolutely a big part of it too. Uh, what about uh, uh, ethics? I would suggest one of the big sources of ethics, of course, is the Bible. Another is what we'd call natural law and natural ethics which in theory is coming by a mixture of reason and, 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 and a mixture of other things. Block and mill would be there in the air. Uh, I don't think they would be very present outside of the academy, but I think their ideas would definitely be there in the air. You know, I mean, because Locke is definitely in the Declaration of Independence. Okay. <laughs> and then, what else was another big thing here? Uh, this continues, continues so far and so on. Again, more of, uh, so part of this, uh, Mosab, I think your answer is actually very correct. I think literature is a big source of, of, of ethics and conduct in our society. It is also a big source of imagination in our society. It's not a coincidence that all the most popular comic books are comic books of heroes. And very often, the most interesting comics, uh, comic uh, heroes are underdogs, right? Batman's an underdog. Superman was originally an underdog, right? And then, uh, what else? Oh, then we have the issue of migration. So Ali Shariati makes this interesting point. He says that every single great civilization, he says there's 27 civilizations in world history. He doesn't, he doesn't name them, and I can probably only name about like 10, maybe not even. He says that every, every great civilization gets established with a migration. So the Romans crossing the Rubicon would be, one, would be the foundation of the Romans, however true that is or not. And then in our case, 
When does Islam, in a way, civilizationally get established? When do we start our calendar? From the Hijra. And then the question related to that would be, what is the source of, of the migration? So why did our Hijra take place? It was to escape persecution. Yeah. Often it is that. Sometimes it may be uh, expansion. Okay, let's see what else we have here. We can also add, what is the survival through difficult times? So not necessarily oppression. So when we get into the story of America, we have one of the big parts of the story of America is the Great Depression. And so much of the rhetoric today is saying, you know, we haven't had numbers like this since the Great Depression. And then what happens with the Great Depression in the American narrative? That then produces the generation that's considered to be the greatest generation. The generation that led to the Greatest Depression is looked at as this, this wild, partying, roaring 20s people that then totally ruined America. And then you have the generation of the people who were raised in the Great Depression, and those are the kids of World War II. And so how did we survive through struggle? You mentioned a template for communities pre-Musa, peace be upon him. Can we say this children of Israel story is a model for communities post-Musa, like that community will receive guidance and may follow? Uh, that's essentially, Sami, that's essentially what I'm saying, that we have a lot of the, the, the key points of dynamics of a community and its longevity in these different ayat. That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Okay, and then of course, just like we had the people who are surviving with uh, surviving through a drought, we then have the people again who are the spoiled brats. And just a few more points. I think that might have been all the, all the key points that, that I had in mind. Of course, this is not so much the community, but what is the, the legacy of the community? Why the divine punishment discrete, uh, decrease after the time of Bani Israel? Uh, Musab, can you expand on that question? Meaning, did the divine punishment decrease for the Bani Israel or for, for everyone else? And I think those are all my big points that I want to go through regarding community dynamics. Okay. So in this first round, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Can you, just, uh, yeah. can you just repeat the point about the Ali Shariati and the civilization you mentioned? So Ali Shariati in his book on the sociology of Islam, he has one essay where he speaks, uh, he says that all the great civilizations of the world they they were established when there was a migration and if we think about what he's saying what his argument is is that is that you have a community in a particular location if they're able to literally pick up everything and sustain themselves in a different location then they're survivors and so so when does islam officially become a surviving civilization it's with the hijrah that literally they're able to take up this whole population, 
move to another location and still sustain themselves almost 100% to what they were. I mean, I say almost 100%, they, they grew from what they were. You know, a, a different version of that is, would be all the people who migrated from overseas to the United States and in a couple of generations erased their identity. So what would he say now if he alive? He's not alive, of course, but you know that, you know, because nowadays the civilization don't, it's just, it's, you know, a global village, right? The concept of... Well, I, just, I think he would suggest that the dominant uh, culture of the world, the dominant civilization is American corporate business. Right. You know. Yeah, and that's, that's the whole theology, right, of the popular culture. That, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. it's, now you don't have to migrate, you just disseminate. Mm -hmm. and, and, and international corporations facilitate that. Uh, yeah. Suleiman, I think one point that should also be mentioned is how communities resolve interim disputes between members. That's, mashallah, that's a very, very important point. Thank you for that. Uh, really to, to how do they address, uh, do they excommunicate people? Do they still manage to sustain? So even, uh, we might have mentioned this when we were talking about Islamic law back in the first course, that the Salafis, I think we also talked about in the second course, so that the Salafis, they grew as these people who are Ahlul Hadith, who are saying, we don't need Islam, we don't need scholars, we can study the Hadith for ourselves. Uh, they are technically not Sunnis. Sunnis, Shafi'i, Maliki, Hanafi, Hanbali. And, and so to prevent chaos from happening, because these guys were super aggressive, that many scholars decided, okay, we're gonna position them as Sunnis as a type of Neo-Hanbali. Because the Hanbali school is basically saying, we are going to, um, uh, we are, you know, we're fo focused on the hadith and whatever the hadith say. And that was uh, an attempt to prevent chaos from happening. That is not as easy to do with the terrorist organizations. Uh, so Musab, so why did the divine punishment decrease? So one of the interesting uh, opinions is that, okay, so after Bani Israel, who is the last prophet of Bani Israel? Anyway. Easy question, it's actually a trick question. Isa was his nation destroyed? No, but what are we taught about Isa He is going to be coming back in end times and he's going to break the cross. Meaning that nation has not yet been destroyed. And so then all that's left is Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his nation didn't get destroyed. They embraced him. They fought him for a long time, but eventually they all gave in. He wins. And so, so Masab basically we're saying the only prophet left is, is Isa a.s. So that is one of the, the, the opinions uh, on, on that aspect. Let me know if that makes sense. Okay, any other thoughts or questions about this? I have a question. Um, do you think that over time, um, like humanity tends to go away from obedience to God. You know, as you mentioned, you know, like in the past when you were looking at our own narratives, you know, how much of our own narrative is, you know, obedience to Allah? I guess my, you know, question is, how much of humanity's narrative is obedience to Allah, in your opinion? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so... If we were to look at uh, essentially two common narrative uh, narrations, 
two common hadith attributed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, about the future. One is that he says, he's reported to have said, other end, uh, he's reported to have said that the best of generations is going to be his generation. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the Sahaba. And then the next best is going to be the people who followed them, the Tabi'in, which literally means successors or people who followed. And then the next best is going to be those who followed them, which is literally Tabi, Tabi'in. And first, one point to think about this is that when you are raising children, you're also raising your grandchildren because your children are gonna raise their children in response to you. So that's what we also have here, right? We have the Sahaba and in its essence, their children, and then uh, their children's children as the core population. And then the prophet says, peace be upon him, it goes down from there. But then he also says every century or so, uh, er, someone is going to come along and revive the tradition. And then you're going to have decline, and then someone's going to come along and revive. Then you're going to have decline. It would be like, like this. this is, you know. We're losing you. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Okay, now can you see me? Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Lots of internet crashes today. So, so this is like this is like a hundred years after Hijra. This is two hundred years after Hijra. This is three hundred years after Hijra, and so forth and so on. And so, so the general sentiment is is that there will be upticks, but it's a, overall it's a descent. And and so to answer your question, Ahant, overall, uh, it would be like saying that the amount of obedience to Allah in the world today is a fraction of what it was a century ago, which is a fraction of what it was a century before that, and so forth and so on. What to think of what 100 years from now is going to be like globally. Professor, I have a quick question here. Isn't yes. there's like a, a hadith along the lines of, uh, I think something like, my ummah is like the rain, uh, no one will know what's better, the beginning or the end of it. Does that just refer to the Ummah like in the time of the Prophet or can we take this to mean that the Ummah will eventually reach a point where its members will be almost like the, the Sahaba? So, so if we apply that, let's, let's, let's give you an abridged version of this drawing. Because we also have in the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, So let's say we have this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Then we have in end times, we're going to have something perhaps like this. A very short-lived period. 
The question is, where are we? Are we super close to that? Is that a thousand years away? I'll let us best. Uh, Sami, have these historical revivers been identified? So there's lists that people have made of, of the revivalists. The, the first person is often considered to be the first revivalist is Omar ibn Abdel Aziz, the governor who is the ruler of, of the Umayyads from um, the year 99 to 101 after Hijra. Uh, I've forgotten most of the rest of them. Uh, Imam al-Bukhari, Imam Muslim are probably in that list. Imam al-Ghazali is the common one, Ibn Taymiyyah is a common one that is cited, and so on and so on. Some people suggest that the most recent one was, any guesses? Bediyo Zaman Saeed Nursi. And uh, the most popular ideological descendant of Bediyo Zaman Saeed Nursi is who? Fatula Gulen, yeah. But Norsi is, is one of those people who's considered to be up there. I mean, Iqbal inspired the establishment of a whole country. So he's gonna be somewhere on that list. But in terms of reviving faith, Ola knows best. Uh, sorry, so the two questions are, how would you uh, uh, square this uh, drawing with the hadith of the Prophet where he said uh, the faith of the ones who are coming after him is going to be more beautiful. In fact, uh, uh, he even equated, uh, let's say, our deeds to be equal to 50 or 50 times more meritorious than the Sahabas. Okay, so so there's multiple narrations. One, yeah, the Prophet peace on asked the, uh, the Sahaba, who has the most beautiful faith? Well, we do, we're right here. And then he says, no, it's the people who, who love me and who believe in me without ever having seen me. Uh, but I don't think that has any measure in terms of qu quantity of people um, from the Tabi'in and beyond. And then another, so, so there is uh, the narration that something like if you, if you do one-tenth of what the Sahaba did, uh, you know, you'll have equal reward. But we also have narrations that say, that if you gave a mountain of gold, it would not, it, it would not, what is the narration? It would not compare to the Sahaba. It was some really small thing, like one splash of wudu or something like that. Something really, really, or one, uh, one small amount of, of donation from, from a companion. So there's narrations, you know, it's, it's, uh, there are narrations that work in a number of different ways. But if we look at the, what seems to be the intent of the narrations, one, of course, is that to believe in the prophet, peace be upon him, without having ever seen him, that is something very, very valuable. And if you put in effort, the Sahaba were in a better situation for some aspects, but as a generation, you're never going to be able to compare it to the Sahaba. So I think uh, all those different ways can be read. Yeah. I so just, just wanted to uh, mention. So, do you think if if one says that uh, yes, there is a gradual decline in the ummah with time, but um, but if we look recently, uh, I mean, we I can talk about um, maybe in Pakistan uh, that you would see like from the people who were there. Uh, maybe 40 years ago were more 
uh, I, I guess they were not as close to the religion. They didn't know anything. Uh, they didn't have much knowledge of the religion. Uh, whereas there is now more tendency of people to, to get close to the religion, learn about it, practice it. So within, uh, within a century or so, there are going to be uh, relatively ups and downs. I mean, it's not going to be like a linear decline, but yeah, overall, I guess it would, it would be declining. So uh, a couple thoughts. Uh, the question I would raise is the percentage of people that are going to uh, Fajr in the masjid. In the 1970s, in, in you know, Karachi or Lahore versus now, is the percentage higher now? My suspicion uh, is that the percentage is probably much lower. No, it is higher. It is higher, but the whole society has been divided into the two different sects. Okay. One is that, you know, the, the masajid is full, but the extreme religion version is there. Okay. And second is the westernization of the remaining uh, population is there. So, you know, the balance, like a, more like a middle class, is, is, is non-exist. Mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah, all those best. So I mean, let me, so let me give you a, a, an illustration of uh, what Malahat is saying, Omar. Mm -hmm. So this is about 1976-1977. Okay. Uh, I was home. It was, uh, and I had put on the stereo and I was playing English music in a very, uh, in a very loud, loud volume. I didn't realize my father had entered the room. And before I realized I get this, I get really smacked hard at the back of my head. And I looked down around, I see it's my father. And the first thing out of his mouth is, where the hell do you think you are? Do you think this is a Christian's house? Okay, now this is the same person who would move heaven and earth to make sure that I went to a missionary school and, to, and through to Cambridge all levels and just to uh, understand that the school was an elite and of the 300 students who make it, uh, 150 students who make it to the sixth grade, 30 of them get picked up to get selected to go through the Cambridge all level track at that time in 1971. So, uh, just to uh, illustrate the point of uh, duality over there, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like those were the seeds of what becomes the the the, the contemporary day. Yeah, I mean, also relate to to Bastier's point. I, I'm drawing it as a simple line, but if we're talking about a population of a billion people, then you're going to see rises in some places, falls in other places, really steep rises, really steep falls, and such. Uh, and there's also a sentiment that in the latter generations, latter centuries, it's not going to be one revivalist, but it'll be groups of revivalists and such. Uh, okay. Any other questions or thoughts or reflections about all this? Yeah, I think, I think, I, I don't know, in this class or some, sometime before you mentioned that, you know, um, if you compare the society and, and the back home, is religion feel like more like a mechanical uh, rather than, you know, it's, it's like adoption or, you know, living by. So that's, you know, and, you know, Zia Bhai and I, we both like incidentally on the same time in Pakistan in January. So 
So I think we were talking about it and that, that was the feeling I have. Uh, I think you mentioned about the, in some of your lecture, previously you mentioned that in you know, the mechanical prayer and non-mechanical prayer. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, any other questions or thoughts or reflections, inshallah? So otherwise, the very, very last thing, I'll go for it later, you're about to say something. So when you say like uh, Isa comes and break the uh, cross, what are the really it means? So killing oh. the Jews or? So, so uh, as is the case with all these end time prophecies, they are a big mystery. Right, and so what are we taught? Isa salam is going to come. He's going to break the cross and kill the pig. And and so a common understanding, and Allah only knows Allah Taala only knows the answer to this until it happens. It, uh, that assumes that it's an authentic narration, but a common understanding is that he is going to call all the Christians to Islam. And so that is what it's understood to mean. He's going to break the cross. He's going to end Christianity. A side point is, is that uh, there's a funny article in The Onion from, from like 15 years ago where Isa Islam comes back and he's telling everyone, look, uh, Islam speaks more correctly about me than Christianity does. I'm a Muslim. And then there's this evangelical preacher saying he's the son of God, whether he likes it or not. Right. Uh, kill the pig that uh, uh, I have no idea what it what it means, but I was teaching this material in a, um, in a college that was very very hardcore Christian in its affiliation, and this is out in the western suburbs, and and so they wanted to talk about end time prophecies because there's also a lot of, of a lot of right wing evangelicals in the school, and I said so there's this thing about killing the pig, and so one of these right wing evangelicals said. That's killing the Jews because Paul says such and such and such and such, and I was just like totally, totally silent. You know, so uh, I don't know that anyone in our tradition understands this means to kill the Jews. You know? There are the narrations that says, you know, there's a rock that says, "Hey, look behind me. There's a Jew. Kill the Jew. Here's a tree behind me. There's a Jew. Kill the Jew." I mean, we have, we do have those narrations in the Hadith literature, and an important point to point out is that, you know. One of the, the positives of our Sharia is that's not the foundation of Sharia. But anyway, besides the point, uh, no one knows what it means to kill the pig. Okay. Any thoughts about what the real politic or the uh, real, uh, actual hard, hardcore political and military power uh, was playing in the role of the, uh, the Bani Israel's conduct? Uh, that, um, yeah, I don't, uh, that's, uh, I mean, I have some reflections on the time of Jesus of Islam, but not for, for them. Yeah. I mean, uh, because the uh, Egyptians' um, military power is not actually broken, is it? Because, I mean, yeah, Pharaoh is, uh, uh, Pharaoh is drowned and so forth, but the civilizational power of Egypt is still intact. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it goes on all the way to the time of Jesus, peace be upon him. You know. uh, even beyond, I mean, uh, uh, sacking of Alexandria Library is from about 3, 4 century BC, I mean, uh, AD. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, um, that's, that's beyond me. That is, that is a fascinating question. You know, just um, maybe on a different track, 
this is seeing the the graph of the decline it creates a kind of psychology that the past is where we need to look towards mm -hmm. and we're living in a time where you know it's a very exciting time there's lots of threats and dangers but there's also incredible amount of creativity and um maybe a graph like this i don't know what it does when we're nurturing you know kids does it make them hopeful for the present and the future does it make them want to be on the cutting edge of development and innovation and solving problems or does it like this is all fitna and we need to you know protect ourselves from it take from it what we can but um fundamentally not embrace it and look for something in the past like i'm not sure if it's a healthy uh, graph maybe this is the truth and it's also you know pointing towards end times and so there's like this you know big picture of history and our place in it is we're not really i don't know it's not a hopeful maybe it's hopeful if you're thinking you're on the up up curve mm -hmm. but um that up curve will be a revolutionary in return to a past rather than a revolutionary leap into the future so i don't know how we think about about that so so yeah, so thank you for that i have a couple of thoughts one i don't remember if we talked about here uh, often in terms of philosophies of history there's two different views one is the tradition one is the modern have we talked about this you know at the beginning of this course okay so what is commonly oh, some people are saying yes some people are saying no what is commonly the tradition view is that the best generation is in the past and the further we are from the past things go downhill and then the modern view is that the best generation is in the future and then the closer we get to that life is getting better and so, so based on what Dr. Mahan was saying, a modern view would be perhaps a more hopeful view and a traditional view is, would be a more, uh, what's the word? It starts with D, De, well, defeated view. Well, that's not the word I was thinking of, but it also starts with D. And so supporting what you're, what you're saying, uh, I used to resist this map, this, this, uh, this graph for a long, long time. So in my brain, the version of the graph was actually like this. Like that is literally the version that, that I would have in my head. Because uh, I would resist. That's strange, you can't see this. Did you draw it or just move the arrow gently? Uh, um, did, oh, you didn't see me even write like tradition or modern. Hold on, let me, let me. Oh. Yeah. There were all but kinds of wonderful things. We could see the gentle movement of the arrow and, oh, there we go. Now yeah. we can. So tradition, modern. And so the green uh, in my resistance um, to, to the blue, the blue is I think far and away the common view. Uh, for me, the green was, was the more appealing view. And, and, and part of it was just resisting this notion that things are just gonna get worse and worse because it then just gives a sense of why try. You know? uh, but, but oh, go ahead. Isn't that the, the, the religious point of view, Mahan, is that 
when the when the baraka of the prophethood has been gone from the humanity then there should be a decline in the that you know the revealed knowledge mm-hmm. but revealed knowledge probably going down and but acquired knowledge is getting up so um but that also raises two things, two questions. So, so we are saying that you know the baraka of the prophethood. You don't have any more prophet. Fatima Naveen comes, and then so that was the peak, right? That was the the because you know you have a combination of both knowledge, mm-hmm. but now that knowledge has been either complete or is no more coming in, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's. My question to Mahan that you know that that's a decline and this is more like a missing portion of the knowledge, which is a static right now, right? You have mm-hmm. to, you have to, you have to work on it to get more analogies and understanding mm-hmm. based upon your acquired knowledge. This is so, where the science is helping religion in a way to opening the door for more understanding. Okay, so. Uh, I have an alternate map um, that I think is kind of like what uh, Dr. Malahad, Dr. Mahan are talking about. If we look from a civilizational perspective, so what is the blue line? The blue line is sort of a salvation perspective. That the further we get away from the prophet, peace be upon him, the more likely is that our access to knowledge for salvation, many tools are decreasing. And, and if we look from a civilizational perspective, then it's probably like this. Right, think of all the wonders of the Ottomans, all the wonders of the Mughals, and so forth and so on. Uh, Dr. Ghazi, you were saying something? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, I mean, my objection to uh, Malahats uh, uh, would be, I mean, it was not my choice to be born over here, away from the period of the Prophet, Sallallahu correct? So, uh, but the fact that, I mean, this basically would come into uh, what Iblis told Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, well, you know, you made me do it. In, in our case, he, he definitely made us born in this period, away from the, so much, so many years, or centuries away from the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the, uh, the, the prophetic baraka. Uh, figuring uh, will have to be factored in, or loss of that baraka would have to be factored in in terms of our conduct, our behavior, and our expectation. And secondly, on your graft, I mean, there's some sort of fatalism uh, uh, evident in that graft. In the blue one, isn't there, Omar? Uh, considering that, if you if we have to, if we try to believe that we are on the last part of the graph, there has to be some sort of fatalism or an eschatological, a healthy streak of eschatology in our DNA? Well, I would suggest that the blue one is the official traditional view. Uh, I think, uh, you know, if we go through, you know, across the ulama, uh, across the world, I think the view of history is the blue one. I don't think that necessarily means uh, fatalism, but there is a certain fatalist aspect to it that no matter how great we can get, we're not going to get, you know, there is a ceiling to it. Uh, So there's a certain amount of fatalism to that. But 
I don't think it automatically breeds fatalism, but I do think that the blue is the textbook uh, traditional outlook. So on your last yeah. comment that it does not automatically breed fatalism, what would your prescription be against breeding fatalism? Well, I'd say uh, that you don't look at a map of history because this is an interpretation of history that you look at what are you earning? Meaning this is, this is like a, a theoretical model. I don't think this type of model will, will help anybody in terms of their Iman. So, and I think yeah, even so the, blue, the, the blue peak at the end, I think it almost asks for the Mahdi figure to come along. Because if you see the, the purely modern viewpoint as a technologist, I mean, then you will hit the glass ceiling at some point when you keep innovation will go to a certain point and then after that it's become obsolete. I mean, the modern so, view would be basically... It's a hype cycle, right? This is the hype cycle. This comes and goes. Because see, the, when, when, is, when you have a hype cycle and then you have a life cycle, right? So in the hype cycle, you, you, have, you have things when the innovation comes and the adoption starts and the enablement happened. And then it gradually went down. Okay. But, if, but if you, if, then it comes to the, when it's, when it's went down, that's your life cycle. Mm -hmm. Then there's another innovation happen and then take another P. Mm -hmm. So that's more like a hype cycle, you know, keep going back and forth. Mm -hmm. so, the, so then, you know, the, in the modern viewpoint for the acquired knowledge and, you know, the, the forward thinking, you, what I think Mahan is talking about, maybe I'm wrong, but is that, you know, it, it will hit the glass ceiling at some point. God knows when, but at some point, it's definitely going to be hitting the glass ceiling or it will get to the, get to the, you know, the revealed knowledge and synchronize with it, right? That, okay, they found all those secrets has been, you know, or the keys has been defined by the last prophet. So I would agree with you. I would agree with you until your last point. Because uh, okay. uh, essentially, what am I saying? The blue line is the blue line is related to salvation. It's related to Iman and what's working against the population. So related to, to Sami's question. Yeah, I agree with you. Does this actually matter? No, it doesn't. Um, am I responsible? I'm only responsible for myself not even necessary for the whole ummah. Uh, but what this does give us is purely qualitative, a sense of, all right, how big is, is the, the wave against me? But even that is, is pretty much irrelevant. But uh, the point I'm making, uh, Dr. Mahan, is you're, you're, if we're assuming there's some dunya secrets of technology in the Quran, yeah, sure, then maybe they'll be exposed. But uh, uh, the blue line is is essentially the condition of iman of the ummah the green line is me pushing back saying no i want it to be like this the condition of the iman of the ummah the orange line is the civilizational sophistication of of the ummah so, meaning but, but you know, isn't that Omar, the civilization and technology is bringing you closer to the annual yakin no i don't think so at all i think it's a tool but for every one person that's bringing them closer to Ainul Yaqeen, I think it's bringing a thousand people away. Hmm. 
right? I mean, so we're using Zoom right now as a, as a way to get closer to Allah. How many people are using Zoom for that versus how many people are using Zoom? See what I'm saying? Meaning for the person uh, who is thank seeking... Thank you very much. You just crystallized it for me. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah thank I, you. I, I don't know what I thank did. Thank you, Mahat. Uh, in any case, I have to run to, to my next class tomorrow then, inshallah, what we're going to do is go through the same passages to see what they say about Allah Ta'ala. And that's the core of the whole worldview question, inshallah. But uh, I have to run. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah reward you all, inshallah, and keep everybody safe, and we'll see you tomorrow.